in Stockholm, it takes you four generations to become part of the city. Welcome to Here There Be Dragons. I'm your host, Jess Myers. This season, I'm taking you to Stockholm. Episode 4, Segregation, Part 1. I think you can probably guess that while I was in Stockholm, I spent a lot of time talking to people. I would talk to anyone. I went up and down train lines, went on walks in the cold, tracked people down at their jobs, hung out with people's kids, sat at people's dinner tables, hung around community centers, talking to anyone who would have me. And there is one thing people mentioned over and over casually, almost a throwaway. The city is, um, it's definitely very segregated. It's age segregated. Growing up in Stockholm in, during the 90s, uh, the city was even more segregated than it is today. It's uh, ethnically segregated. Like a much, much, much stratified and separate, segregated neighborhood. Like everything is like so, it feels stiff and controlled. These people don't necessarily meet a lot because it's so segregated. You know, we were segregated from the, from the schoolhouse door. I'm a black American, so when I hear the word segregation, I have a very specific picture in my mind. No, I'm sure they have nothing whatever against Negroes. That is no, that's really not the question. You know, the question is really a kind of apathy and ignorance, which is a price we paid for segregation. That's what segregation means. It, you don't know what's happening on the other side of the world because you don't want to know. But the more I poked around the edges of what Stockholmers meant when they talked about the separation in their city, I realized that people were talking about many different things. Because segregation comes in many forms, racial segregation is often the first thing that comes to my mind. But there's also class segregation, segregation by citizenship, by social status, by family size, by age. And the way these forms of separation impact you also influence which forms of separation you are able to perceive. The city's earliest separations are not so different from Paris or many other old cities. The edges of Stockholm were initially organized to provide for the center. The main factor that I usually bring up is the geographic issue, uh, Stockholm being centered on the Old Town, which is an island in between the Lake Mälaren on the west and then the Baltic on the east. This makes it kind of a, an hourglass shape. Fanning out to the north and south were rural and industrial spaces where workers and farmers produced food, textiles, and the other raw materials of life. But the city's waterways prevented its productive edges from ever touching, creating a division between north and south. 
Here's Eric. And you should know him by now, but in case you don't, he's the architect and researcher at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. The center was populated first, and then for a few hundred years was the urban condition, and then everything outside of that, both to the north and to the south, was, was seen as urban land. In incremental steps, there were a few periods in the 1700s and then the 1800s primarily where the urban fabric was extended outside of the the old town and into the uh, northern and southern islands essentially. While Stockholmers are not as restricted as the industrial workers and farmers of the past, this urban division lives on in the city today as a mental barrier. Stockholmers perceived the north-south division as a barrier of distance, cost of travel, or just feeling out of place. I mean, as well as a mental divide, there is also a historical regional divide because the the Swedish uh, landscapes literally goes through the Lake Mälaren and uh, divides Southern Malm from Norrmalm. So it's like a very hard line. Like right cutting through the middle of like Gamla Stan, in my opinion. Even if it's less than eight kilometers apart, you, you never go to the other side of the town. But that hasn't affected anyone in hundreds of years. But it's still, I mean, something you learn about at school. Alltså, bor man på, på norra sidan, då tror jag att man håller sig mest på norra sidan. I grew up primarily in the south of the city and there is a really harsh line where like you're, you go and you move. Just för att man känner sig mer bekväm där liksom och, och så in i stan. Men alltså, ja, södra sidan, jag åker nästan aldrig dit. Me and my friends jokes about it because if, if someone li- lives in say Enskede which is close to the city center but on the south side and I moved to uh, say for example Solna which is really close to the city center but on the north side it's like completely different worlds I don't really know why that has happened I think it's because Stockholm is such a divided city in a general like it's such an archipelago so you have all this water disconnecting people Det om jag har någon släkting eller vän som bor där och jag åker dit för att hälsa på men jag kommer liksom inte på att jag ska bara åka hit på södra sidan för att gå här liksom och så skulle jag tro att det är för dem som bor på södra sidan också att det är samma sak. Man, man är väl liksom hemma där man bor och rör sig liksom där. Jag kan mena att prata med folk på age where Där de säger att jag skulle aldrig bo i söder. Det är terrible. Jag har ingen känsla för det. Och jag känner mig som för det norra. Jag säger att jag skulle leva där. Men det med att utveckling städer är att ägarna tenderar att move. Separation in Stockholm has become more complicated because of years of grappling with two large questions. How should the government provide for its residents? And who should have access to those provisions? To begin to untangle these questions, we're going to have to start in the 1950s. Under the power of the Social Democrats, Sweden began its plans for one of the West's most ambitious housing schemes. You might recall in the last episode, we promised you we'd discuss this policy, the Millions Program. Well, we're here. I mean, Stockholm has never had enough apartments almost, you know. There was something called the Million Housing Project in the 60s or something, where they tried to build a million apartments. Already then there was a housing... There was not enough apartments 
and that is still the case very much like there there's like busloads of people who arrive at Stockholm every day literally by 1950 most swedish cities were experiencing enormous population growth similar to now residents were struggling to find long-term places to live the crisis set in motion a series of studies to prepare for an enormous scheme one million housing units built in 10 years across the entirety of Sweden. That's 100,000 housing units built per year. The program began in earnest in 1965, and listeners, it worked. In fact, they pulled it off a year early. By 1974, over a million housing units were built. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of Sweden was urbanized quite late. And a lot of people live in single-family houses, 70% or so. So city center development has been quite slow in the larger cities. Here's Nazem again. He's the urban policy professor from last episode. When we had this post-war housing boom, where the government built a lot of working-class and middle-class housing, it was in the outskirts of city centers, on cheap land, while also a lot of housing was demolished in the inner cities to make room for uh, these central business districts. And when they built these working-class family housing, it was like this amazing welfare state, civil society, and private commercial industrial building company achievement, working together to provide housing for a million people. And it was successful as a project in several ways. Wonderful things, wonderful comforts, Wonderful convenience. And one of the ways was that it provided really high quality standard housing to poor or middle income people. It was scientifically really researched, like the kitchens, how, sh- how big should the kitchens be, suitable for the housewife at the time. For all the marvels of science, you will still be a busy homemaker. The exact amount of light and space for children in the yards. Uh, so if you look at the, what we call the modernist neighborhood plannings, or what in an American discourse would be called the projects, this million program home neighborhoods, modernist neighborhoods of post-war Sweden are really child-friendly in terms of you know, really being generous of playing grounds and, you know, small forests and, and, you know, this kind of traffic-separated safe structure for children to play in. But also, you know, a lot of generous space and at the time, you know, technically advanced housing in terms of, you know, central heating and, and hot water and, you know, facilities that, that has been enduring like 50 years without major renovation. So they were, you know, high, high standard in several ways. Free of yesterday's drudgery and routine, better able to express your own taste and imagination. You can see here for this little model we have, it can be placed side by side, it can be grouped so here. In the beginning, these housing projects were celebrated. As Nazem said, they introduced domestic technologies that prior to the program were still uncommon in slowly urbanizing Sweden. The indoor plumbing alone was a huge step forward for many working-class families at the time. Stockholm was doing what most post-war cities all over Europe were racing to do, modernize. And they did so with cutting-edge building technology that was emerging from France, prefabrication, 
Gone was the need for artisans like carpenters and masons. In their place was a material that revolutionized housing all over the world, prefabricated concrete panels. Where I was from, it was like uh, two-story buildings, family houses. And in uh, the other neighborhood, it's like concrete, uh, big concrete buildings, high-rises, satellite dishes. Uh, on the on balconies uh, subway instead of commuter train you know so quite a lot of like yeah it looks really different less green more concrete and stone it's like you made uh, neighborhoods out of legos and you just place them on on a map uh, different buildings facing each other and then there's this yard in between where you play where kids play and then you do it, uh, another one next to it, another one next to it. And then when you've done that, you've created like a huge block. And then you copy that design and put that design next to the first one. And then a third one and a fourth one. So it, like all the areas look the exact same. Magnus remembers going to visit these new neighborhoods with his architect father. My father was an architect and he was very much engaged in in projects in uh, the northwestern suburbs of Rinkeby and Tensta, uh, Husby and Akhalla. And so I remember going out there uh, basically when these um, areas were built and this, they looked amazing with these kind of new houses and, and so forth. So I don't think there was any idea that this this would become a social problem which it apparently later on became i mean we went there and it was very much a kind of pioneer uh, moment in a way so it didn't at all have any kind of bad reputation or anything of course so i think in during that period i mean the inner city was maybe a bit more scary because it was more run down Here's Carlos, a curator at Arcdes, the architecture museum in Stockholm. He curated a whole show on those panels. A third of that million units were built with prefabricated concrete panels. And, and it was a process that was... Um, so like the use of prefabricated concrete panels in Sweden happens because there is a group of people that is called the D4 group that goes to France and learns how the technique is produced there, right? And they go there, they study it, they visit all the factories, they develop a series of, of like, uh, well, albums of photos, of documents, of drawings about that issue. And they bring it here as a, as a tool that they thought this is something that we can implement here and we can develop. And that was connected to the Million Program project. In the Millions Program, the Social Democrats were confident they had answered the first of these really big questions. How should a government provide for its residents? You simply build one million housing units in 10 years. Problem solved, no? Not exactly. Because, of course, there's that very tricky second question. Who should have access to these housing units? And that's the key to this whole dilemma. As Nazem said, the land that these Millions Programs apartments were built on were at the very edge of the city, removed from the commercial center, because it was cheap to build there. This decision ensured that whoever lived in these apartments would be residents of the city's periphery. And that was done by design. It is extremely spatially segregated. It was built that way. Like the way 
of the city develop along the subway lines was like little pearls on a string where every pearl was separated from the next one with green areas. So it was thought of to be separate. There was no connections except for like little pathways through these green areas. That's Mary Louise. I'm an architect by training, but I work as a lecturer at the Royal Institute of Art uh, in the course Decolonizing Architecture. What then happened in like the 70s was that we had this big influx of uh, working immigrants to come to work in Sweden because there was not enough labor. These were mostly in the new suburbs of Rinkbytensta uh, and then later Skärholmen, Sätra, um, these parts. And now they're labeled as no-go zones. But that has a whole other politics weaved into it because these places are as layered as the rest of Stockholm. The influx of workers from the 70s is hugely important because they weren't just any workers. They were from all over the world. The Social Democrats' early stance on immigration was one of welcome. The 60s and 70s were decades of global upheaval, whether it was revolutions or military coups or natural disasters. The world's migrants were seeking stability, and many found it in Sweden. When immigrants from Chile, Iran, Turkey, Ethiopia, Yugoslavia, and many more countries arrived in Stockholm, they became working class. The short answer is million programmet and lots of immigrants started living there because it's um, affordable. Or we came into like a working class status, I guess, like people who were much poorer and... Um, and so on. Here's Jelena. She's an architect whose parents immigrated to Stockholm in the 70s from Serbia and Montenegro. I grew up in Brambergen, uh, which is um, maybe half an hour outside of Stockholm. In it's an area that's part of the One Million program here in Sweden. Actually, I mean, security, you, you could kind of uh, interpret in, in different ways. I mean, a security in the sense that it was unsafe because there were these maybe like criminal activities was mostly in the commercial center uh, because that's what, that was the hangout where, where you know, uh, these gangs gathered. But there was another kind of level of, of security or safety, which was about um, like getting lost. <laughs> and this area is, it's basically, and it actually did happen that it get, got lost. Uh, it, it, everything, it's just a replica of the same module and everything looks exactly the same. So um, I actually did, I mean, and also, yeah, as a kid, I, got, I, uh, I did get lost, seriously. It sounds crazy, but I did. Um, it was really difficult to orient oneself because it was like these inner gardens and they were just repeated, like laid next to each other. So there was like not this kind of hierarchical structures in like or or even like points of sight where you could kind of find your way back or so. Um, 
Yeah, I even went into the the wrong like entrance once, and and went up to the floor where my apartment was, and I rang on the bell, and somebody else opened. <laughs> I was, I have that, such a strong memory of that as a kid. So for me, that was more like scary. I think like when I grew up in that area. I mean, that's and they that's what they also tried to do with the with the renovation of the area, where they tried to differentiate. So they painted different colors and made the entrances different, and so on. I'm sure it's not because kids get lost, but <laughs> but I mean that kind of applied to my growing up and and you know security in that sense, mm-hmm. the orientation, the lack of kind of ability to orient oneself uh, in the area. When immigrants from all over the world moved into Millions Program housing, it changed the public image of those units and along with it what the government was willing to provide. Stress. There's been a slumification process. Here's Nazem again. Where as these neighborhoods have been inhabited by poorer and poorer residents since the 80s or so, and also to a larger extent immigrants, so like non-white Swedish people, the investments aimed to, you know, renovate and rebuild uh, and adjust, you know, some of some of the unthought aspects of these environments have been lagging behind. As we talked about last episode, the 90s were a period of privatization in Sweden. The Swedish government sold public housing at a discount to private companies and residents to avoid the cost of renovation. For a public housing company to get loans to refurbish the housing was extremely expensive compared to, for example, somebody who owned their own homes. And this has continued and has also been accentuated. So we see this growing slumification process where um, basically a good standard at, at a time, at a certain point, has become quite old. And we have also a new, relatively new problem with this slumlord kind of symptoms where it could be the public housing companies, but mostly it's when they sell these some of these housing blocks to private owners. The business idea is to, you know, minimize the renovation uh, and maximize rent. So people pay for quite lousy uh, renovations in the housing. As the Millions program grew older, the attention to maintenance waned and its population changed. The housing that had once been lauded for its slick modernity was now regarded with disappointment and even fear. Uh, A mental barrier between North and South? I would say more a mental barrier between immigrant-populated areas and non-immigrant-populated areas. I don't think Harholman and Tensta is that much different. One is in the north, one is in the south. But Harholman and Hondal, they're both in the south, but Hondal was a completely different place. Mostly Swedish-populated is where I got the incident with the guy who tried to trip me. I don't know what he was trying to do. He wanted me to fall into the railways or something. But he tripped me in the train station, and I wouldn't say Harholman and Hondal have anything in common. They're both in the south. So 
to me it would be most more like Swedish areas, non-Swedish areas, the barriers. These new barriers were immediately noticeable to Samuel, who moved from Ethiopia at the age of 13. When I was on the red line, I was like mesmerized to see the amount of the border that is invincible in Stockholm, which is the uh, socio-economical border. Even on the blue line, green line is so visible. Who gets uh, like on and off where? And that was like the people of color, the working class people, the families who are migrant or have um, migrant backgrounds always live on the far outsides of the subway lines. And that was something I noticed when I was, I guess, even when I was 16, 17, but never really could contextualize it in terms of uh, what it meant. I just always, you know, like just moving around the city with my mom, visiting her friends across town. You can assume like these areas are always almost like as if they were reserved for us, <laughs> meaning people of color, migrant families, you know, like black people. So I felt like, oh, white Swedes don't go to these places or they don't live here. So, But then you get to understand this socio-political climate of Stockholm and a, and a country and in a city that is internationally known for, I guess, not a huge class divide, but it's to, for people who live here, it's really noticeable. It's really about access. It's really about rent. It's really about who has access to what is provided where. That shift created another and newer layer of segregation in the city, one that Samuel feels still today. A lot of my friends from SLB and Vellendi, they never went to town. A, they felt the city was not theirs, kind of like, you know, if you went there, you just, yeah, it was not a welcoming environment. And then B, it also was a question of the cost uh, of, you know, both getting there, but also like, what can you do when you're there that doesn't cost? The new residents of the Millions program became associated with the failure of those housing units. The architecture and the people became one idea. Right, it's, it's actually a question that is interesting. How, how a building becomes an idea. How society thinks of a technique and has an automatic response to it. Um, if you mention the word prefabricated concrete panels in Sweden, the automatic response is negative. That's a fact. Why is negative? Well, because there was a moment in which uh, specific kinds of buildings were associated with specific kinds of neighborhoods, and those neighborhoods were associated with certain kinds of attitudes or specific groups of people that were living there, and that was associated negatively uh, for society. And that was part of media, that was part of, uh, of general cultural construct. Carlos' question continues to stay with me. When does a building become an idea? The buildings of the Millions program were always an idea, or maybe a better word would be an ideal. It was a policy that attempted to answer, what if we could house everyone? What if housing wasn't a crisis? But the political will ran out on both the idea that decent housing was everyone's right and that everyone deserved it. 
In part two of this episode, we're going to take a closer look at the current life of the Millions Program and the people who live there. So join us next time for Segregation, part two. We are produced with the generous support of the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies of Fine Arts and Konstnaushnamden, the Swedish Arts Grants Committee. Thank you to our senior producer, Adelie Pajman-Ponte, and our team of graduate assistants from the Architecture Department at the Rhode Island School of Design. Kimberly Ayala Nahira. Bilal Ismail Ahmad. Daniel Guerrero. Uthman Aloa. Fatu Kamara consults for the show. Corey Jacobs does the music, and Adrian Lilly is our sound producer. If you're not on Patreon yet, you're really missing out on some very cool content and some beautiful stickers. There's a whole mini-series of shows that spotlight all the digressions that we have to cut. We are going to be building new buildings the same way that we have addressed arriving to the moon. You can find those by signing up on our Patreon in the show notes. And if you can't get enough of us, you can find us on social media or on our website and in our newsletter where there's lots of fun content like readings, maps, and videos. If you have a comment or a question, record it and send it to us at htbdpodcast at gmail.com. You might end up on the show. And last but certainly not least, review us. Five Shining Stars on any platform that you stream us on. It really helps others find the show. Okay, until next time, this has been Here There Be Dragons. between the bridges. There are many Stockholms, and the name means many things for many people. But for me it is the city of my childhood. The city of a thousand trades. The city of the silent crowds. The city with no faces. The city of no dreams. <laughs>